Okay, before we begin, I'm going to put a big disclaimer on this story. It's about sex. Not only that, but it is about sex that is not consensual, at least not according to the modern definition of consent, and that is abusive. The text of the Bible itself is quite graphic in the passage, so obviously my retelling of this story is going to have a biblical amount of sex in it. I totally understand that some people can't deal with stories like that, and if that is you, you may need to skip this one. But if not, buckle up. You have been warned. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But, since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife, so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Onan is one of two biblical characters who have the dubious honor of giving their names to a practice that people wanted to condemn. The other is Simon Magus from the Book of Acts, who gave his name to the practice of purchasing church offices for money. Onan gave his name to something else. For a long time, Onanism was the most common term for the activity that we now call masturbation. And that term was not given in any approving way. It was a direct reference to Onan's story, and in particular, to God's displeasure with what Onan had done, and God's punishment for it. But was masturbation ever what Onan's story was actually about? No, it wasn't. It was only seen as being about that because some people, who had already decided that masturbation was an abominable thing, decided to use it to control the activities of others. And so, I was thinking, maybe it's time to let Onan's story be heard without all of that baggage. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.22 Onan, the Man with the Plan.
Onan had never liked his big brother. Er, yes, that was his name, Er, and it suited him, was selfish, self-centered, and often just plain mean. It was kind of a thing with elder brothers in his family. Take his uncle Joseph. I mean, Joseph wasn't literally the eldest son of the family as such, but he was the eldest son of Grandpa's favorite wife. As such, he had definitely inherited the eldest brother curse that had run in the family for generations through people like great-uncle Esau and great-great-uncle Ishmael. Joseph was full of himself, all right, and nobody in the family liked him apart from his father. In fact, Judah, Onan's father, despised him so much that lately he had been openly talking about how much money the family could make by selling the jerk off as a slave. And nobody quite knew if he was joking about that. But though Joseph did have some redeeming qualities, he was at least smart and a good manager. Onan's brother, Ur, seemed to have inherited none of the abilities, but all of the ego. He was just unremittingly insufferable. But he was his father's favorite, and always used that to his own advantage. One day, Onan went with Ur to a nearby Canaanite town. While he was waiting for his brother to complete his part of the business in the marketplace, Onan happened to spy a beautiful woman. She was tall and shapely. She had beautiful, long, flowing tresses and flashing green eyes. As soon as he saw her, he knew that he had to have her. He didn't really care how. If necessary, if she were the daughter of a prominent enough citizen, he would have been willing to marry her. But if she was just a slave or something like that, he would have been just as happy to take her in some back alley of the town, whether she was willing or not. He had only just resolved to go and find out who she was so that he could plan his conquest when he heard a voice behind him and winced. Ooh, that is one rocking bod. I think I'm going to get me a piece of that. Wait for me here a little bit longer, will ya, little brother? I'm going to go over there and find out who she is.
Her name was Tamar, and she was indeed the daughter of a leading man of the town. Ur proclaimed that he was smitten, and that he had resolved that he would marry her. Onan immediately understood that there was no point in doing anything about it. Calling dibs or protesting that he had seen her first would change nothing. If it was a matter of marriage, then it was something to be sorted out by their father. And there was no question which of his sons Judah would favor. So Onan could only seethe in quiet resentment as, a few days later, Judah headed off to the Canaanite town to talk about arranging a marriage with Tamar's father. He was able to negotiate an excellent bride price, and the celebration was appointed for a few days later. All of this for Onan only served to increase his hatred for his older brother and his jealousy of his favored status. A few months later, Judah arranged a marriage for his second son as well. The girl was comely enough and came from a good Canaanite family, but she was no Tamar, and Onan continued to watch the tent of his brother in sullen jealousy. In the course of time, both of the wives became pregnant, and each produced a child. Onan's wife went into labor and produced a son for him. He rejoiced in the birth of his son and praised Yahweh, who, it seemed, had finally seen fit to give him a break. Ur was not so blessed, however. All that Tamar produced for him was a girl. He raged and complained at her, but of course he could not change what had happened. Onan was pretty sure he had never seen a more beautiful sight than the profound expression of disappointment on Ur's face as he stomped away from his newborn daughter towards his tent. The fever struck Ur when the two children were about a year old. When he took to his bed, he was already shaking so violently that he stumbled on the way. Tamar had not developed any love or tenderness towards her husband, but she did understand that he was the only one who offered her and her young daughter any sort of stable future.
and so she tended him diligently. But in spite of her faithful ministrations and the various traditional Canaanite tinctures and potions that she prepared, Ur continued to worsen. After lingering in pain and sweat for only a few days, he finally died. Judah was devastated. He wept and tore his clothes. He raged for days. Some said that it was vengeance for what he had done to his own father. For, by that time, Judah had finally gone through with his long-planned scheme of selling his brother off into slavery and telling Grandpa Jacob that he was dead. Judah was certainly given a strong dose of the kind of grief that he had caused for his own father. But that was not the primary message that most took from the death of Ur. The fever had come on him so suddenly, and there was no cause that anyone could see. It must have been judgment. Yahweh had looked upon Ur and found him to be wicked and decided to strike him down. Having come to such a conclusion, they were left to speculate over what on earth Ur might have done to merit the god's wrath. Some thought that he must have made some error in a sacrifice. Others suggested that he had perhaps insulted the deity by accidentally pronouncing his name in some disrespectful way. They really were not quite sure what he could have done to earn such extreme wrath. They only knew that he must have done something. There was no other way to come to terms with this dreadful tragedy that had occurred. Onan, of course, did not struggle from any such doubts or questions. He knew precisely why Yahweh had seen fit to execute his brother. God had done it because Ur was a self-satisfied prig who did not deserve to own a woman as hot as Tamar. But, of course, Onan did not share his opinion with anyone for fear that his father might hear of it. He contented himself with smiling smugly as he watched his father tearfully lay his eldest son in the tomb. When Judah came to visit him, at the end of the time of mourning, Onan knew exactly what he had come to talk about. It was the custom throughout all the lands that whenever a situation such as this one arose, 
when the eldest son of a man had married but had not managed to produce a male child, there was one thing that should be done to salvage the tragic situation. There was a vital need to ensure that the dead man's legacy was maintained. There needed to be a male heir to carry on his bloodline. Since he had not produced one himself, his next brother was expected to step in and produce that heir with the man's widow. So Onan understood that his father had come to tell him that he must do his duty and go in to Tamar. He had been expecting this, in fact, and in the privacy of his own tent, he had rehearsed his response many times. With a show of grief and resignation, yes, he promised his father that he would do right by his eldest brother. But Onan had a bit of a different plan. Oh, yes, he would take Tamar to his tent and to his bed, and he would have his way with her. Oh, would he have his way with her? And his wife couldn't say a thing about it, because it was a filial duty. But taking her to his bed was one thing. Giving her a son would be something very different. Once she had gotten a son on him, he would lose all of his power over her. She would cease to be his virtual sex slave. Even worse, any son that she had would become the heir of his older brother and take any legacy that he or his own son could claim from Judah. He didn't see why he should allow any of that to happen. And so, he came up with his plan. Tamar hated it. But she couldn't do a thing about it. On a regular basis, indeed, whenever the desire came over him, he would summon her to his tent and play out some of his darkest fantasies on her and her body. At times he would hurt her physically. Other times he only demeaned her verbally. But he always found some way to make her feel terrible. But the thing that troubled her most of all was how he would always withdraw from her at the last moment and allow his seed to fall to the dusty floor of the tent. She would beg and implore him for her own sake and for the sake of her daughter. If only he would finish inside her. If only he would give her the slightest chance of bearing a son then she and her daughter could have some hope of security and stability. 
but whenever she asked such things, he would only laugh and often humiliate her again. And so the torture continued. As the months passed, Onan began to realize that everyone suspected what he was doing. After all, Tamar had already proved herself to be fertile by bearing her daughter. Everyone expected that she should have at least become pregnant again by now. The method he was using to make sure that she didn't become pregnant was known, after all. Couples had been using it for ages, when they were not ready to have a child or another child. Normally, it wasn't a big deal because it was understood that sex could have many purposes, that it brought pleasure and could bring two people closer together in their relationship. But Onan and Tamar weren't in that kind of relationship. They were expected to come together for one purpose alone, to produce an heir for Ur. And if that was not happening, then it was clear that someone was failing in their duty. Anyone could see, just by looking at Tamar, how unhappy she was in her situation. So people were automatically inclined to turn their judgmental eyes on Onan. Onan frankly wouldn't have cared if it hadn't begun to affect his social standing and the willingness of others to do business with him. But even so, he stubbornly refused to amend his ways. It had become not only the primary fetish that drove him, but also a twisted kind of revenge on his dead brother for all that Onan had suffered by him. Onan's death was so sudden that it shocked the entire community. He got up early one morning and seemed the same as always. He was just heading out to tend his herds when he suddenly fell to the ground, crying out. He complained at first of a pain shooting up his arm and into his jaw. But when the people examined him, they could see nothing wrong. Soon after, he said that it felt as if he had a heavy weight pushing down on his chest and struggled to even draw a breath. By the time that his wife and then his father arrived, Onan was already gone. Judah now doubly bereaved 
at the loss of his second son, cried out like a wounded animal, and no one could even talk to him. Was part of his pain related to the guilt for the pain that he had inflicted on his own father? The dramatic death obviously convinced everyone that Onan had been struck down by a god. And this time there was no speculation on the reason. Clearly Yahweh had killed him for his failure to do justice to his brother's wife. Everyone accepted this explanation, relieved to think that such a fate would not strike them, since they would never behave so abominably. Everyone accepted it, except for Judah, who stared darkly at Tamar in the entrance of her tent. He would never forget that she was the only connection between the death of his two sons. And so, there you have it. Onan's fate was not a result of masturbation, nor was it specifically because of a refusal to engage in procreative sex. Oh, I suspect that he was a dirty, rotten scoundrel, and that he treated Tamar abominably. But there is really no way to take his story as a condemnation of specific sexual acts. Sex is a gift, and meant to help us be all that we were meant to be. Masturbation is a normal and healthy activity, and there isn't anything wrong with it in appropriate contexts. The Bible doesn't condemn it, not in Genesis, nor does it elsewhere. The only other passage that is sometimes used against it is Jesus saying about looking at a woman with lust in your heart, but that is not what that passage is about either. I won't get into that passage in this episode, but I will leave a fuller explanation of what that saying is actually about in the show notes. The more I dug into Onan's story for this episode, the less I liked him. But that dislike has nothing to do with where he deposited his seed. It rather has everything to do with how abominably he treated Tamar. As for Tamar, she is definitely the best person in the whole story, and the only one who I can admire. But her story is far from over, and now that Ur and Onan have been dispatched, I can come back to her story in a future episode and give her the honor that she deserves. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks, and do leave a review on your podcast provider 
to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da by Kevin MacLeod. And for the mood music of this episode, I chose various versions of MacLeod's tune called Scheming Weasel, including a remix done by Alexander Nakarada. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast, and welcome to my newest supporter, Donna Marie. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>